Thank you for downloading our podcast. The prophet Hosea receives a strange command from the Lord. The Lord tells him to take a woman of the night to keep it clean for the pulpit. He is to marry a woman who does not protect the marriage bed, and he is to build a house with this unfaithful woman. How can the Lord order a prophet to do something contrary to his own will? What is the purpose of this book? Overall, what is the prophet Hosea teaching us today? When we think about the sacrificial system and Baal worship, we can think these are problems within Israel. These are Old Testament situations and, and issues. But we also know that the Apostle Paul uses language in his letters where he speaks of himself being poured out like a drink offering. And so we have this sacrifice that's presented there. We think of the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, verse 1, exhorting us to live as living sacrifices unto God. And so this would imply that the thing that God fundamentally desires from us is sacrifice. That the more we sacrifice, the more we give, the more the Lord loves us necessarily. That's where our minds go. It's something tangible. It's something where uh, we can tally up how much we've given for God. But Hosea actually teaches us the exact opposite. Because the Lord says, I don't want your sacrifice. The Lord wants something else. We think of Christ in Matthew 7, verse 23, when people come before him on the final day of judgment in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, and they recount all the sacrifices they've given for the kingdom. Christ says, away from me, I never knew you. Rather terrorizing statement, isn't it? Because when, when you hear these exhortations from the Apostle Paul to sacrifice, you hear people tallying up their sacrifices before Christ, and he says, but I never knew you. You wonder, how can one know if they are in the kingdom? Is God some sort of God who's inconsistent, where one moment his affections are warm uh, to his covenant's people and to those whom he has called, and, and the next moment uh, he's turned his back on us? How do we reconcile these sorts of things? And again, these are things that the world will always take apart in Scripture. And so these are not questions that are unique to me. And so when, when somebody comes at you with these sorts of things, or maybe we think of these things within ourselves, how can I know if I have Christ if on the one hand the sacrifice is not enough that we give, and yet we're called to sacrifice? How do we know if we truly have Christ? And so when the Lord deals with the Israelites and writes to the Israelites in Hosea, we're left with this question. How do we know that we're going to enter into the fullness of the kingdom of God? How do we know that we truly have Christ and are in line with the Lord's redemptive purpose when on a superficial level it seems God is inconsistent. Of course, we, we know that's false. But in terms of our mindset and how we comprehend this, what are we missing? Because clearly the problem's not with God, the problem's with us. So as we look at this, we'll see first, God desires commitment. Secondly, Ephraim desires sin. And lastly, we have God's indecisive people. And so let's begin with God desires commitment. Now where we left off 
we left off in sort of a, a high place with Hosea. Because in Hosea 6, verses 1 through 3, there's a prayer that, that's given. And it's a desire where Israel wants to turn back to the Lord. And, and they're looking forward to being raised up again, right? And so we, we pointed out, you know, resurrection and, and how Paul seems to be citing from Hosea 6, 2 and 1 Corinthians 15, laying out the significance of Christ's resurrection. So we think this is great. Israel is in a place of repentance. Israel desires to return to the Lord. This is exactly what we desire for sinners. But then we turn to verse 4. And the Lord asks this rhetorical question. It's not encouraging. What do I do with you, O Ephraim? What do I do with you, O Judah? Remember, he called attention to Judah and said, Listen, Israel is about to be marched out of the land. Don't be surprised. You're next. Learn from them. Observe what's going on. You're about to face the same sort of thing. And, and we can read this and say, why is the Lord asking this question? It seems that like God's people want to return to him, but, but yet the Lord's asking this question. What do I do with you? I mean, our instinct is to say, well, embrace them. This is great. That This is a step in the right direction. But when we look at this and we think about another prophet who's a mere contemporary or, or nearly a contemporary of Hosea, we think of Jonah. And this is the sort of thing that we see with Jonah the prophet. It's, uh, I don't think, accidental that Jonah's name means dove. It's sort of a, a foolish, fluttering animal. It, it's not a bird of, that we would think has a grace and the glory of an eagle or a hawk where we watch them soar. Uh, a dove is sort of a clumsy thing that's a very weak uh, not something that we think is very decisive and certainly not top of the food chain. And Jonah lives up to his name because he, he wants to go away. One of the things in Jonah, he goes down, he goes down, he goes down. You find that in chapter 1, going away from the Lord. And I'm going somewhere with this. And as he goes away from the Lord, uh, the Lord sends a storm because Jonah's trying to run from God and outpace the living God. Only to find he can't. He doesn't want Assyria to hear the gospel, the warning of God, the call of the gospel. And so the Lord sends a great storm. Jonah ends up into the sea, swallowed by a whale, the great fish, as the text says. And as he's swallowed by this fish, he prays this, this wonderful, pious prayer. It seriously is a, a very edifying and encouraging prayer when, when we read it. But the Lord gives us commentary. The text literally says that uh, the fish vomited, puked um, Jonah onto dry land. So it's not that the Lord guided it so the fish would go up on the, on, on the land and open its mouth and Jonah delicately walked out. The, the Lord gives us commentary on this sanctimonious piety uh, of Jonah where he's flippant. On the one hand, I'm running away. The next moment, well, God got me, so now I'm going to sort of be broken for a little while, and then he goes and, and weeps and mourns over a plant. Again, you have the typology of descending into death, being raised to life, and how the Lord's ultimately going to bring about that glorious resurrection. But it's not sincere. And that's what the Lord picks up on with Ephraim. That Ephraim is one like Jonah, Oh, man, the consequences are more than I can bear. Maybe if we go back to God 
life will be a little better, a, a little easier. It's sort of like Gomer earlier in, in the text, like, wow, maybe I should go back to my first lover because it was more stable there. It's not a real repentance. It's not a real change of heart. It's not a real conviction that I'm going the wrong direction and this path is ultimately detrimental and death and something that, that doesn't lead to something great. And the Lord's calling out and saying, listen, Ephraim, I've been patient with you for generations. You've heard my warnings. I've sent prophet after prophet after prophet. You're not hearing me. And now he's saying, what do I do with you? On the one hand, you have this wonderful prayer. But on the other hand, I question the sincerity of it. It doesn't seem that your heart is really tuned into my purpose. So we're starting to get to the essence of where we started in our sermon, aren't we? Because as we go on, that the problem that is still there, that's at the root and core of Israel, then the Lord has implicated the priests and the kings in, in Hosea chapter 5. They've lost their way. They're, they're not guiding the people into the proper direction. They're not calling Israel back to the Lord. It's a nation that, that has completely lost its guidance. We think back to the opening, the first chapter. Hosea doesn't go searching the land for a, a wife who's a, a, a wife of whoredom as, as Hosea is commanded. No, he just simply finds a woman. The implication is this is what Israel has become. Uh, it's no longer a dark, seedy underbelly of a particular nation or area or city. This, this is the norm. This is the accepted reality of where God's people are. And so the Lord's saying, what do I do with you? You have this prayer, but yet you've still lost your way. Coming back to me is merely a matter of convenience. So the Lord makes it clear through Hosea by using this metaphor. And the metaphor is something that farmers in the ancient Near East would certainly recognize. You need water. It's dry. And you see the, the morning dew and you think, great, we're going to get some water into the earth. We're going to get some water into the crops. But it doesn't stay in long enough to really penetrate the earth. It evaporates. There's no substance to it. You see the cloud forming in the horizon. You say, great, there's rain. Here's the rain clouds. We're going to get water for the, for the crops. Everything's going to work out. And then it just blows away and it has no substance. This is the same sort of thing that Peter says with a waterless spring. Jude gives the same sort of thing of these waterless clouds. It's the same sort of implication. And, and the point of it is that there's, there's something that seems and appears to have substance. Something that appears to, to have a real lasting consequence, a bringing life, a, a good consequence. But there's nothing that comes from it. And so he's looking at Ephraim, he's looking at Judah, and he's saying, this is what your love is like. You're like the cloud that appears, looks like you're going to bring something of life. You don't bring life. You have the dew in the morning that appears you're going to bring life, but, but there's no life. There's no substance to this. And so it's important if anyone points out to you that God is flippant or inconsistent, and they appeal to things like this and what Christ has said, you need to put it into context. Verse 4 is very, very important to understand the Lord's intention here. Because the Lord goes on, and we say, well, 
isn't the Lord mean? I mean, he's cruel. Here he, he just comes to his people and he tells his prophet to, to do this role play of God's people being unfaithful and the prophet being faithful. God is, is not fair. And the Lord says, before you go down this road, let's recount some history. The Lord says, this is not the first time you've heard this warning. He said, I, I have hewn you. I've cut you out. Now, the picture here is pretty vivid, isn't it? If you ever watch someone make a sculpture or carve something out of wood, this is the intention. And, and ironically, what, what would Israel think of? Well, they made their, their, um, their false gods, right? They make them out of wood. They make them out of stone. They know what it means to chip these things away. But this image communicates to us really the, the painfulness of sanctification, doesn't it? I'm not saying sanctification is bad. I'm not saying we don't want to be sanctified. We, we should want to be sanctified. But the point of this is that the, the rough crustiness that's malformed and, and doesn't contribute to the overall image needs to be cut away. And that cutting is not something that's very comfortable always, is it? I mean, you look at how violent it is to cut into a log or a piece of wood and, and start, you know, making it into something. Now, I'm not saying this is necessarily wrong or immoral, or I'm not trying to imply that. But the implication is the Lord is saying, I have shaped you. I have come to you. I, I have molded you. The prophets have come. This isn't the first time you're hearing this message, so don't turn to me and say, Lord, you are unjust. Lord, this is unfair. Lord, you are cruel. The Lord's saying, I've warned you. I've warned you. I've warned you. I've warned you. I've tried to chip away at the rough edges, and those rough edges just don't seem to want to be chipped away. And so the Lord's saying, this is the consequence of this action. Now we say, okay, so now we move to where we started, where we have two things in verse 6 that the Lord does not desire, sacrifice we look at it in the Levitical law or the Old Testament and uh, with the priests and what the priests are to do, sacrifice just general. This can be any type of sacrifice. And so that's just anything you can give for sin, maybe thanksgiving. That's the sort of thing that's going on there. It's just a general sacrifice. The Lord's saying, I, I don't want your sacrifices. And the Lord says, and I don't want your burnt offerings. Now, the burnt offerings are the highest and most glorious offerings that an Israelite could bring. Uh, this is where the animal that is offered is fully consumed. There is nothing left uh, for the priest to eat or anyone else to eat. It's holy for the Lord. So this is the offering that gives no benefit in terms of uh, moving someone up, say, in, in, in the hierarchy of Israel, right? You give right sacrifices, you can sort of get the priests on your side if they're eating well, and maybe they might overlook a few things, right? So you can see bribery sort of going that way, uh, which seems to be going on as some of the things in Israel. But also, uh, this burnt offering is just saying, I'm fully committed to God, and here I'm going to show that. So the Lord says, I don't want these things. And that's where you, you go and you read Leviticus, say, but you give all the requirements as to how these offerings are to be done. What do you mean you don't want these offerings? What, uh, how does this work? Well, again, if we take this out of context, we're missing the point. It's not that the Lord is saying the sacrificial system is immoral, or the Lord is saying, I asked you to do something that's immoral. 
the Lord is pointing out what is the fundamental substance of what he desires. He wants our commitment. He wants our steadfast love, right? So when you think about the Lord's covenantal promise, he shows us steadfast love to his people. Well, he wants us to have that undying commitment to him. Simply stated, Israel has stopped Israeling with God. And what that means is they're no longer striving with God. So when Paul says, fight the good fight, uh, this isn't something that we should see as just a New Testament reality. It's referring back to Jacob fighting with God is, is what I would argue. That this fighting the good fight is striving with God in a good sense where we're trying to die to self. We want the rough edges cut away and we want the Lord to sanctify us according to the new man that is present within us. And so the Lord's saying, that's what I want. I don't want people to make a show of their piety. I don't want sanctimonious prayers. I don't want people that brag about great things they've done in the name of Christ and in the kingdom. I want people who truly have a heart that's tender to the Lord's purpose. People who have a commitment to me as they sojourn under the sun. The sacrifices would flow from this, right? It's not, let me make a sacrifice to show how pious I am. It's let me make a sacrifice because consciously I recognize I am a sinner and I need redemption. And so the sacrifice is being offered as one is anticipating the Messiah. Israel has it reversed. They're not living in light of the anticipation of the Messiah. And so they're, they're boasting of who they are. So as there's two sacrifices, the Lord wants steadfast love and also knowledge. Again, we've talked about knowledge in the Hebrew language. Knowledge is not just knowing things about God, but truly knowing God in the sense that you live for him as you sojourn under the sun. And so that's really the, the bulk of what we see with, with the, why God is so upset with Israel and how his people are, are so flippant and lacking commitment. But now briefly, what, what does Ephraim fundamentally desire? Well, as we go on, we have this call in verse 7. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Now as we look at this, some see this as Hosea making a mention um, back to Adam where Israel crossed the Jordan River. Uh, but the problem there is that we never see Israel really transgressing the covenant. Israel is, is walking in the confidence of God, and I think that city name is just saying from the earth and, and moving from Adam to a new creation. I, I do think there's something Joshua's doing there. But I don't think this is what Hosea is calling to our attention. Well, I think what Hosea is calling to our attention is the reality of where Israel is failing to see their commitment to the true God. They, like Adam, do not value, do not honor the word of God. Because isn't that really the fundamental problem with Adam in the Garden of Eden as he's created in that unique arrangement of a covenant of works there in Eden? And as he's created there, and Satan whispers to him a false word, Adam doesn't turn back to Satan and say, but this is what the Lord said. And the, word, and the Lord's word is sure and pure and true. And so whatever you hold out for me is not life. The Lord holds out life. You're holding out for me deception. Leave the garden. 
which is what Adam should have done. But instead, he listened. He listened to the voice of his wife. He listened to the voice of the serpent. He didn't rebuke his wife and tell her not to take of the fruit, even though he's right there. She doesn't search the garden for Adam. She turns to him, as the text tells us, which means the two of them are right there granting Satan an audience, listening to him, considering his argument, if you will. Well, the Lord is saying, like Adam, this is how Israel is a national people going into a new Canaan as a national people and trying to secure this land in a unique way of showing heaven on earth has gone into the land. And again, the, the blessings and the curses are tied to that land particularly, not to the eternal blessings like we have with Adam. And so as they have done this and they've heeded the voice of folly, they've given in. And as they've sold out, the Lord is saying, just like Adam, this is what you have done. And as they go forth, we say, okay, well then what's going on with Gilead? Why, why mention this? And why is this a city of evildoers? And, and why are people being murdered on the way to Shechem? When we look at these cities, remember we can think of Gilead here being that uh, unique place where we have um, this region in the north. Uh, where we have an assassination of kings in 2 Kings 15. So there's immorality that goes on there. Again, it's kings acting like worldly kings recounted in this very place. Uh, We think of Shechem, where we have the the priests engaged in an action like like a robber. So this is not a a crime of opportunity that's called to our attention, where maybe somebody drops a $5 bill or something, you pick it up and don't tell the person, right? Like that's sort of a crime of opportunity. You should at least do the honest thing and and tell the person that, that they dropped it. This is more deliberate. This is actually scheming where to kill people, how to kill people, how to gain dominance over them. And they're saying this is what the priests have done. That's what the Lord is saying. They're going to Shechem. And so again, Shechem is probably a place uh, that's competing with Dan and and Beersheba as worship centers in the north. And so the priests are figuring out how to overpower Israelites that are not worshiping in the places where they want them to worship the Baals and the false gods. And so it's not just that the priests are leading Israel into idolatry, is that the priests are actually funneling people to particular places to engage in idolatry. That's what the Lord is saying. So he's saying, listen, you can have this sanctimonious prayer, but look at what you have become. This is who you are. The priests who are supposed to be defending the holiness of God are failing and not doing what ought to be done. And so when we hear of this state of Israel and Ephraim, they're not guarding the garden. And so he's pointing out the reality. He's seen this horrible thing. He's seen how Ephraim has sold out. He's witnessed this. So he's presenting this to Israel, saying, well, what do I do with this? You have this nice sanctimonious prayer, but but nothing has changed. These same sorts of things are still going on. You're not turning. And so, yes, there is something coming your way. Now, verse 11 is split. So in verse 11, when he says, O Judah, a harvest is appointed, this isn't something positive. This is like the name Jezreel with the scattering of the seed where they're going to be scattered throughout the nations. The harvest is speaking of Judah being plucked out of the land. So he's saying, listen, there's going to be a problem with you and you are going to experience 
a, a consequence for this action. Now, what do we do with the reality of, of Israel? And, and what do we do with God's people? Are they ever going to truly be tuned in to his purpose? And, and what do we really take from this? Well, we find that on the one hand, there is a promise. The Lord will restore and the Lord will heal. This tells us something very significant about the human condition, doesn't it? We can't heal ourselves. We can't bring about this, this new life just through a series of self-helps. We, we need the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. We need the power of God. We need the Holy Spirit to transform us. And that's what the Lord's saying. He's saying, but listen, as we're showing this model of God's people being marched out of the land, I'm not done in my purpose of what I have promised. My promise still stands. He is going to heal. He is going to restore. He is going to show the reality of this promise. But he says, here's a, the problem. The problem is that as the Lord has this desire, the people are not there yet. That's the problem. And so, this is like what I've talked about the Canons of Dort and the Fifth Head of Doctrine where the Lord basically hands us over to our sin for a time. Spirit doesn't go dormant. We're not losing our election necessarily if we're, you know, in the book of life. But if we continue to, to buck against the, pro, the Lord's program, he might say, fine, here you go. Take it. Enjoy that sin. See how fulfilling it is. You know, in our day and age, we, we don't really have to just look at Scripture. We can think of housebreaking a dog, right? I mean, if a puppy dog makes a mess in the floor, what do you do? You take its face and you rub its face in it. Dog goes, oh, I don't like that. I don't want to do that again. Well, eventually the dog gets tired, kind of forgets about that, doesn't want to go outside, makes another mess, you do it again. And you keep doing it until the dog realizes this really is not enjoyable. I think I'm going to go outside where they're telling me to go because that's a lot nicer than what I'm experiencing. That's basically putting it delicately what the Lord does with his people. And that's what the Lord is saying to Ephraim. You're not in a place of repentance yet. I'm bringing you to a place where you are so broken that you say, I don't want that mess anymore. That, that's not fulfilling. That doesn't bring joy. That, that's not comforting. And so the Lord is saying, don't, don't think that, that you say this one prayer and I overlook everything else that has gone on in the past. There, there's a lot of rebuilding that needs to go on here. And you're not rebuilding it. It's like you don't care. You're just like, oh, we'll just pretend like that never happened. And the Lord's saying, no, you've made a lot of messes in the carpet, and we got to clean this up now. And that's what the Lord is saying in the midst of Israel. Now, in terms of, of our takeaway, when the Apostle Paul speaks of Israel being the pedagogue, I do think there is a uniqueness in national Israel and what they're doing, where the Lord is trying to project heaven on earth, and, and show a model of what it's supposed to be. I would appeal to Hebrews as we've gone through Hebrews for that. And one of the things that Israel's teaching us is we're not going to bring in heaven on earth. And that's something humbling, isn't it? Because it teaches us that we have to follow our Savior and Redeemer to the place where he's leading us. And when the Lord is, is speaking of the steadfast love, and we go into Peter and we'll, we'll deal with this this evening as well, you know, Peter talks about the, the Lord 
doesn't lead us away from the trials. Psalm 23 leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. So following Christ doesn't always mean every day of our life is going to be superficially joyful. It doesn't mean we're going to be free from trials. It doesn't mean we're never going to have hardship. What it's teaching us is in this steadfast love that no matter what we face, we are always wrestling to die to self and to live unto Christ. That we always want to live in light of the identity we have with our Savior. The Apostle Paul recounting his conversion. What does the Lord say? Stop kicking against the goads. And so the Apostle Paul has this radical conversion and apostolic calling because the Spirit's been prodding him. And rather than giving in to the prodding of the Holy Spirit, the Lord has to radically break him. That's what we find with this example of Israel. And this is one of the mysteries that, that Calvinists can never fully comprehend, right? We, we don't understand this. We don't understand how there's a general call of the gospel, a sincere call, and a call for us to respond, and God works when God desires to work. We don't understand how it is that when the Spirit regenerates us, we have new desires. But whatever the case, what we learn from this is not to try and reconcile the things we can't reconcile that God's already figured out. The call is for us to bow our knee in a cross-shaped posture, humbly before our King, recognizing He's our Redeemer. And this is also why I wanted to read from Isaiah 53. And this is one of the tragedies when you go through a, a book and, and you take sections at a time. Not that that's bad. We want to dig into the text. But the unfortunate thing is we can miss the whole picture. And Isaiah 53 points out to us the full picture. So if someone comes to you again, when, when we get back to the opening point and the opening question, if God doesn't want sacrifice, he instituted sacrifices, what does God fundamentally want? How do we know if we have Christ? It's not that God is a contradiction. God's teaching us that we, after the fall, in a post-fall world, are not going to have the commitment to God as we ought to have. He's going to teach us that we are a broken people who are going to experience the consequences of the common curse. We are a broken people who will experience the consequences of sin. No matter how pious we think we are, we are not pious enough. No matter how much we have done, we have never done enough. Now, we don't say that to just overwhelm us. This is where the beauty of Christ comes in. Because with Christ, in Isaiah 53, he's conscious of his mission to take our sins upon himself as one who has not sinned, as one who has not done wrong. And he does this, as Isaiah predicts, with the promise of coming back to the land, symbolizing what? The full entrance and glory into heaven. So when James and Peter identify us as a wilderness people, this is not to say that, that we sit around discouraged. That, that we sit around thinking, oh, there's no hope. Why, why do anything? It should encourage us. Because on the one hand, when history is ebbing and flowing and may not be where we want it to be, we can believe God's still in control. His plan hasn't been thwarted. When history is going well and it's easier to be a Christian and it seems that, that things are more in line with, with where they ought to be, we can be thankful. 
and say praise be to God. In our Christian walk, we recognize that we have to continually die to self, that we are those who are continually tempted and prone to sin. We are those who are called to conform to Christ. And the beauty of that servant song in Isaiah is where does it end? Does it end with Christ in the grave, a defeated Savior, a, a, a Redeemer that has failed to do the full action of what was set out to him? No. We cannot miss the end of the servant song, which concludes the servant songs in Isaiah. He lives to make intercession for his people. When we read Hosea, this is a very somber warning of who we are potentially. It's leading us to realize we, we can really fall far from the grace of God. And, and the warning is don't test those boundaries, as I've said before. That's really what I see Hosea hammering home. Don't test those boundaries. Walk and continue to wrestle with your Redeemer. And believe that your Redeemer lives. Believe that your Redeemer is guiding you and shepherding you even in this age. Believe that his work is sure. Believe that it's only because of Christ's perfect work that you will gain access and enter into the heavenly glory because of Christ. Let us then follow our true Joshua and understand that he will lead us and shepherd us through the dark times. He will lead us and shepherd us through the good times. Let us continue then to desire to have his word and his, his means of grace continue to chip away at the rough edges. And may we continue to be an Israelian people that is wrestling with God, not in a cantankerous way, but in a way where we truly want to die to self, to live unto him, to enjoy the blessings of his kingdom and our communion with him more consistently. Let us never lose sight of the graciousness of our God who gives us a new heart and desires that in that new heart we are those who uh, desire and are transformed seeking to conform to our heavenly calling as we have been redeemed in him. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com, that is urcbelgrade.com, to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshipping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.